Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 14 this morning. Uh, the title of our message is A Kingdom Worth Celebrating. We have in these last couple of chapters seen the, a, essentially a worship service in heaven as Jesus Christ is presented as the one who is able to take this scroll that we've looked at He's able to, to judge. He's able to uh, carry out the punishments that we're going to see in this book that take place. And importantly, he is able, he is worthy to be the one who rules over this kingdom. And we'll see this morning that it is a kingdom of his own making, not, uh, not one that we make. And that is something worth celebrating. You know, we have celebrations uh, every year for America, uh, July 4th and various holidays, uh, national holidays that's, that celebrate who we are as a people. Uh, the, the cherry thing, if you didn't catch on to that, it's George Washington's birthday. I think it's, actually, it's celebrated tomorrow. I'm not sure what day it is. Uh, but at any rate, the father of our country uh, we, we celebrate these kinds of things, uh, but they, they all pair, pale in comparison to the kingdom and the one who is going to rule over that kingdom in terms of what should be celebrated. And that's what we see going on here in heaven. People celebrating Jesus Christ and worshiping him because this is, this is something that is, that is most definitely worthy of celebration. And we find ourselves in this third section of the book of Revelation that talks about things that will take place in the future, things that take place after these things. We've already looked at Jesus Christ in chapter one, this uh, incredible vision of him, the one who's presenting these truths to the apostle John, uh, this one who is worthy of praise and the, this incredible vision of him and his glory that we saw in Revelation chapter 1, really giving authority to the message. Uh, we've seen the things which are the messages to seven churches that, uh, that uh, we saw in chapters 2 and 3, seven literal churches that existed uh, in the first century, Jesus Christ revealing things about these churches, things that they needed to correct, things that they were doing correctly, uh, and uh, he gave them promises concerning their future, not because they were so great, obviously, not because they had everything wired, and since you're, you're such good Christians and so good at following my rules that I'm going to give you these blessings in the future. Of course, we saw, no, that's not the case at all. Uh, they have these future blessings because Christ is so great and because they're trusting in him. So they have these future blessings. And then John is essentially raptured to heaven and allowed to see this incredible scene here, setting the stage for what is to come in the following chapters. So Jesus is introduced as the one who can take this scroll that is essentially the judgments that will be poured out upon the earth so that he can come again and rule over a kingdom in the future. We saw that last time. 
primarily in this worshiping of the slain lamb. He's presented as the righteous one. He's able to do these uh, things that are going to take place. He's worthy because he's, he is the exact one that the Bible promised would come all the way back from the beginning. You want to know what the Bible is about? That's essentially, uh, it's essentially about Jesus Christ and the fact that God promised that he would come to this world to save us from our number one problem, which is sin. God promised he would take care of that problem immediately. As soon as sin entered into the world, God said, I will take care of this problem and it will be taken care of uh, through a person, a man, the seed of the woman who we find out over time is Jesus Christ. And now we see that he will be able to uh, rule and reign over this earth. And there's a, an incredible reaction to that, this reaction of worship. So we spent a lot of time last week looking at worship and what it is, what it isn't, that it is primarily a, a recognition of one who has authority over you. And we talked a lot about how, how we should do that. Worship isn't just singing a song or singing a particular type of song or anything along those lines. It is simply uh, showing God that he is our sovereign Lord. And, and how, how should we do that? Well, the Bible tells us we should do that in spirit and in truth. So we spent some time uh, looking at that last time. And then today, in verses 9 through 14, we'll get into this kingdom worth celebrating. We have the investment, the inheritance, and the irrepressible praise. Now, I want to tell you, it took some time to think of three words that begin with I for this one. So, uh, But it, it eventually came to me. We begin with the investment. The investment of Jesus Christ, of course, primarily. He is the one that does all of the investing here, just like in our parable that we read this morning that we'll get to, notice that the, that the slaves who receive the money, it's, it's given to them. They're not, they're not earning it in any way. It's an investment on the part of Jesus Christ. Revelation talks about that also. Revelation 5, 9, picking it up there, it says, and they that is, the, the elders and the 24 elders and the angels are the they there, sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we'll continue reading the, whole, the rest of the passage. Verse 10, You have made them to be a kingdom, and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down 
and worshipped. Well, we begin with this new song that, the, that is introduced here, talking about the worthiness of Jesus Christ, and primarily he is worthy because of this incredible investment that he made. But what is this, this idea of a new song? It doesn't necessarily mean that it's, that it's new in time or that kind of thing, but it's, it's a phrase that is used quite often in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, and, and in the book of Isaiah, we see this idea of a new song. It's, it's, a, it's a new song because it's talking about this, this new phase of God's plan for the world that we are moving into here. We're moving into really the next way that God is going to deal with the world, and that is in this trib- what we refer to as the tribulation period, and that Jesus Christ is worthy to be able to do this. Uh, we need to realize that in the book of Revelation here, John is, is in heaven. He's seeing these events take place. He, he is since he's in heaven, he's really outside of time, which is something that is, that's impossible, really, for us to fully comprehend. But it's important in our, in our understanding of Revelation that sometimes, since John is outside of this world, living outside of time when he's seeing these things, he's able to see these future events. So he's able to see things uh, outside of the timeline that we experience here on earth, where well, we wake up in the morning, we live our day, and we go to sleep at night, and we wake up and do it again the next day, time is in, on the earth is very uh, what we would call linear. There's a start and there's an end, and we progress along that timeline as we live our lives. Well, in heaven, outside of that, uh, John has access to the entirety of history, past, present, and future. So he's able to uh, see, these, see these events, maybe not always exactly chronologically the way that we experience them. And that'll be important later in our study of the book of, of Revelation. It is largely chronological. It largely moves down a timeline, but sometimes we take a break from that timeline and, and go back and look at past events. Sometimes we even take a break and look at future events. And that's kind of what John is experiencing here as we uh, see him understanding what Jesus is about to do. He understands it because he's seeing it in its, in its entirety. And this new song is new in nature. It's talking about something that, that really hasn't been totally revealed in, in detail. And that is, and he's being celebrated, Christ is being celebrated because he is worthy. It says, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. We, we looked at this word worthy earlier in our study of the book of Revelation. Revelation 4.11, if you'll remember, it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all thing and things, and because of your will they existed 
and were created. And if you'll remember, when we uh, studied that passage, that's pretty much directed towards God the Father. All three persons of the Trinity are, are represented here in this scene that John is privy to. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all here, but that statement of praise in Revelation 4.11 was directed towards God the Father. Now when we read Revelation 5.9, that is clearly directed towards God the Son. The Lamb who was slain uh, is obviously a reference to Jesus Christ, but the language is, is more than similar. In fact, it, it's the same. The same level of worship and praise is being directed to God the Father as to God the Son. Now, why would that be? Because they're both God. That's why. They are, they are both receiving this worship. Jesus is equal with God the Father because he is God. That term for worthy is the Greek term axios, and it, and it means having a high relative comparable value or worth. In fact, it was kind of a, a legal term or could be thought of as a legal term that, that Jesus is put on the scales of justice with God the Father on one side of the scale and Jesus is put on to the other side of the scale and it balances perfectly. He is exactly co-equal with God the Father. He is the same value or worth as God the Father. That's why the statement of praise directed towards him is essentially exactly the same. He is, he is fitting. He is appropriate to take the book or the scroll and to break its seals because he is co-equal with the Father. He is God. He is without sin. That's, good. That's uh, the reason why he is able to be slain and purchase these people is because he is without sin. Isaiah 53, 9, speaking of Christ prophetically back in the Old Testament, uh, one of the most amazing chapters of the entire uh, Bible describing Christ and his crucifixion. It says in verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This one who would go to the cross on Calvary would be without sin. Hebrews 4.15, for speaking of Christ, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. He's a human who lived on this earth. He faced all of the same difficulties, temptations of sin that we did, yet... It says, without sin. He faced the same temptations and he did not in any way, shape, or form give in to those temptations because, uh, not just because he was God, yes, he was God, but that's not the only reason why he didn't sin. Part of his humanity is that he came into this world fully human completely dependent 
on God the Father, and he did not sin. He was holy. Part of that, uh, or his holiness was partially revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 5, the, the uh, Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of his glory, the same John who is writing this book of Revelation, uh, saw that on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and because of these things, he is able to judge. John 3, verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John here, even uh, perhaps when he was writing this, uh, he didn't realize the extent to, the, uh, to which all things have been given into his hand, but Revelation gives us the rest of the story. This scroll, this ability to judge and rule over his kingdom is literally given into his hand. Verse 36 of John 3, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, The NASB, unfortunately, says, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Really, the King James gets it better there in verse 36. It says, but he who does not believe the Son will not see life. So in other words, it says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Those, it's two different words there for believe, but they are synonyms. They mean exactly the same thing. The single condition to have eternal life is believing. Believe. Trust in this lamb who was slain, who we will see purchased people from every uh, nation. If we simply trust in what he's done for us, we can have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Speaking of Jesus' ability to judge his right to have this scroll and open its seals. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Speaking of the resurrection, remember he's a lamb who was standing as if he had been slain describing the fact that Jesus was slain, but now he's standing, he's been resurrected. That's important. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, speaking of the resurrection, it will happen each in his own order. Each person who trusts in Christ will be resurrected, but it's, it's going to happen in a particular order. Christ, the first fruits, is resurrected first. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when he, Christ, has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So in other words, that rule, authority, power has been given to Christ because he's worthy to receive it. And then after he has abolished all of, of man's rule and authority and power on this earth, then he will hand the kingdom back to the Father and will go into the eternal state. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> uh, this seven-sealed scroll that we've, that we've seen already 
Uh, Christ is the one who's breaking the seals. Revelation 6.1 makes that very clear. Uh, Revelation 5, he's worthy to take the scroll and break its seals. Then we see that start to happen. Maybe we'll get to that next week. Uh, the lamb broke one of the seven seals, Revelation 6.1. That kicks off this whole series of judgments, chronological judgments moving along a timeline. If we could stretch this uh, slide out, these could go all in a timeline as we move across, but it's this is a very difficult thing to uh, put on a slide. So there's all kinds of different ways that people show what's going on here. We have the seven seals. In the seventh seal, that breaks, and then comes seven trumpet judgments. The seven trump, the seventh trumpet blows, and then we have the seven bowl judgments that flow uh, out of that. Again, it's it's chronological, but sometimes there are breaks. In the action, typically after a six, uh, the sixth seal, then there's a break. That'll, that'll be uh, Revelation chapter 7. There's a break in the action, and then we take a look at some other things that happened during this period of time. Then the seventh seal, the seven trumpets come. After the sixth one, there's a break, and we see some things that take place uh, during these trumpet judgments. That's around Revelation uh, 11, 12, 13, uh, fit into this break here. And then in, uh, I believe it's Revelation 15, we get a seventh trumpet. And then these seven bowls, uh, our bowls of wrath are poured out. Uh, so again, largely moving down a timeline. Occasionally there will be breaks and we'll look at some other information but here's our here's our timeline the scroll the seven sealed scroll is largely describing this period of time tribulation and the kingdom and the eternal state uh, but for the most part revelation 6 through 19 is describing this short little seven year period these uh th this isn't to scale obviously, but seven, uh, seven years would be about the width of this line right here on that. It's a very short period of time, but obviously it's very important to God as he's devoting about 14 chapters worth of material to describing events that take place during that uh, time period. Uh, and it is a this tribulation is kind of a transitional time period between the church age and the kingdom that it exists uh, on the earth. This is God's plan for the world, essentially, that we're reading about here in Revelation. Uh, in really, the entire book of Revelation. And it, and it is good for us to know the plan. Uh, even though we, you know, we may, we do not participate in this tribulation period at all, but it's very good for us to know what God's plan is. Uh, it helps a lot with fear. We see things taking place in this world. Uh, literally, an hour from here, hour and a half from here, we see very tyrannical sorts of things happening. We see it in our own country things happening that seem like, wow, 
uh, things are a lot different now than uh, even when I was a kid. Certainly, uh, things are a lot different now than they were two years ago, even uh, in our in our nation, and that can cause a lot of fear in our lives. But if we know what is going to happen in the world, we know what God's plan is. That should help us with the fear. Probably one of the most fear-inducing things that a person could go through is fighting in a war or any kind of situation where your life is literally uh, in jeopardy. You do something wrong and you can die. That, that will cause an awful lot of fear. And that's why soldiers and uh, policemen and even pilots uh, go through a lot of training. And you, you have these things reinforced in your brain. If this goes wrong, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do X, Y, and Z, and we practice it over and over and over until it becomes uh, second nature. Soldiers can literally be blindfolded, take their rifle apart, and put it back together, and it, and it works perfectly. They can do these kinds of things because they are, they are trained, and that is to overcome the fear that will be there if you're not scared when your life is on the line, you're probably an insane person. Everybody has that fear. But if you know the plan and know what to do, then you know what your role is in this plan, then you can overcome that fear and carry out your duty. If we know where the world is headed, we're back here in this church age, we know where the world is headed, and we know what our role is supposed to be for God in this time period in which we are living. But we ought to be so concerned with our role and the things that God has for us to do that we're not overcome with fear about where we're headed because we know that God has something for us to do now. And that is to be conformed to his image, to study his word, understand it, apply it to our, to our lives, be a light for him in this world, love other people, serve other people, and, and do these kinds of things. And then uh, when we see, clearly see in our world today that we, we are headed towards this, we are headed towards this world being ruled and reigned over by an antichrist, someone who is, is completely opposed to Jesus Christ and God, and he's going to take over this place completely. Uh, man, I, I've got to love my neighbor. I've got to, I've got to uh, serve other people. I've got to be concerned with my own personal life and the way that I'm uh, living before a holy God. I, I've got too much on my plate to be overly concerned and paralyzed with fear because after I'm raptured, the world's going to be dominated by the Antichrist. That, that's why we know the plan. That's why it's important for us to, to know the plan so that we can love God and love others now and carry out what he wants us to carry out in this world. So he is worthy because he was slain, we see. Uh, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, Revelation 5.9, for you were 
slain. Why did he have to be slain? Well, death is the result of sin. That's right from the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, Adam sins by taking of the fruit of the tree that God told him. He gave one command. You You can do whatever you want in this world. Just don't eat from that tree. And what does Adam do? Same thing you and I would have done. He eats from the tree. And the result of that is death physical death, spiritual death. He's separated spiritually from God. He used to have perfect fellowship with the God of the universe, walked and talked with him literally in the garden. He disobeys God. That is immediately cut off and he knows it. Adam and Eve both know it immediately. Oh, we shouldn't have done that. Now we don't have fellowship with God. Now we're scared of him. Now we want to run away from him and hide from him and uh, kind of try to take care of our own problems instead of complete devotion and trust in him. Not only that, but he's going to physically die now. He was created to live forever, uh, but you blew it, Adam. Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. You're going to till the ground till you return to the ground Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Uh, Romans 6, 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, we We are extremely negligent in our presentation of the gospel if we are not mentioning sin. Sin is the reason why Christ had to die. Sin is the reason why you are separated from a holy God. Uh, Sin is the reason why Jesus went to the cross, died, paid the penalty for our sins because the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord because with his perfect uh, shed blood, the blood of a very God himself shed on our behalf is enough, as it says in Revelation 5, 9, uh, to have purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus Christ, with his perfect shed blood, purchased all people, not a subset of people, but every person has had their sin paid for. First Timothy 2, beginning in verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. He purchased Every single person, because he paid for, he took upon himself on the cross something that we we can't imagine. I mean, if you if you commit a crime uh, and it's worthy of death, you go to trial. A jury of twelve people convict you. You're sentenced to death for murdering somebody or something, and you are executed. You go to the electric chair or the gallows or whatever. method there is to end your life. You go there knowing 
I, yeah, I did this. I, I murdered that person uh, and I'm going to die for that. Jesus Christ, that, that's not what Jesus did. He didn't go to the cross because he had committed some sin. He didn't go to the cross to uh, take on just one sin. All of the sins of the world and all of the shame and everything that goes along with sin was put onto Jesus Christ as being, since he was God, and he took all of that upon himself on the cross. Notice that it, the, the language could not be any more precise, any more explicit to get across the idea that this is all people. It says that he purchased with your blood men, uh, people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. The word every uh, is carried on to each one of those, those words there. And, and it, mean, it means everyone. Every single person had their sins paid for. That's why every single person can trust in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that every person will. It means that every person has the opportunity to because the God-man died for their sins. This is the same language that's applied to this Antichrist. If we, you know, uh, some of Reformed people will say, well, you know, the, the guy being described in Revelation 13, oh, that's just, that's some emperor from a long time ago. Uh, you know, so that's what it means. There isn't going to be an Antichrist in the future, of course. It uses exactly the same language that is described here, Revelation 13 and verse 7, speaking of the Antichrist, it says it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Oh, by the, by the way, are we able to be overcome in the church, in the church age? Uh, what does the Bible say about that? That Jesus will establish his church and the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it? That's just another piece of evidence that we're not in, in the tribulation. We're not overcome by the Antichrist or overcome by the devil. We are, in fact, overcomers because Jesus overcome the world for us. This, however, says that the Antichrist is going to be able to overcome uh, the saints in the tribulation period. And he's given authority over, notice this, every tribe and people, and tongue, and nation was given to him. He has authority over the entirety of the world. That is very explicit language there. Describing that of the Antichrist, he's going to rule over the entire planet. Every single person is going to be under his authority. The Bible uses the same language to, to describe who has access to salvation through faith in Christ. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, everyone. Just a kind of a poetic way of saying it. Talks about this in Daniel also. There are many, many parallels between Daniel and 
the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and the book of Revelation in the New Testament. Daniel is sort of the framework. If you had seen a house that that just the just the sticks are up, just the framing is is there, uh, and that's the book of Daniel, kind of the framing, the the way it's going to look. You get a pretty good idea of what your house or your barn's going to look like after you get the 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 framing up, but. When it's completed, then, then you really see it. Well, that's what Revelation is. Revelation is the rest of the story that God wants us to know at any rate. Daniel 7.14, speaking of Christ, says, And to him, Jesus, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away in his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Everyone has access to eternal life through Christ because he shed his blood for people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He didn't die just for believers, 1 John 2.2, he, speaking of Christ, he himself is the propitiation or covering for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, it says there. This is an unlimited atonement is the, the technical theological term for this. We do not believe in Flushing Bible Church, in a limited atonement. In other words, Jesus only died for the sins of, of believers or only died for the sins of the elect. He died for the sins of the whole world, every single person, so that we as believers, as His lights, His representatives in this world can, with a perfectly clear conscience present the gospel of Jesus Christ to every single person, any person on this planet. If, if Hitler were still living, I could with a clear conscience give him the gospel knowing that God could have him believe or it, whoever, whoever you want to insert into that uh, sentence, whoever the worst person you can possibly think of on this planet today, uh, that person could believe in Christ for eternal life because the God-man paid the penalty for his sins. Now, this doesn't mean that every person is going to have eternal life. Clearly, this promise must be appropriated by faith. It can only be received by faith, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of people will just stop reading there and build their entire system of theology from Romans 3.23 and 3.24. Oh, we're justified by, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, while that is true, there's more to the story. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously uh, committed. Verse 26, 
For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, notice this, so that he would be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Paul's point there in Romans is that we do not earn our salvation through good works, following a set of do's and don'ts. Rather, it is given to us by way of faith because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. So whether we are Jew, a Gentile, an American, Chinese, Iranian, whoever you are, you can trust in Christ because he died for your sins. He gives it to us by way of faith. The gift is offered to you. You receive it by way of faith. And we are not purchased so that then we can uh, go on to live however we want. We are purchased for a purpose. We are purchased for God's use. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So the investment is Jesus Christ himself. He is worthy to take this scroll, break its seals, which is... Uh, uh, kind of a poetic way of saying he is worthy to judge this earth. He's worthy to judge this earth, uh, eradicate the, the God of this earth who is Satan and rule over his creation. Why? Because he purchased all people. He was slain and purchased people from everywhere. Any person can be a part of this uh, kingdom that we're about to see. Any person can have this inheritance because Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, purchased us. And since he purchased us and we receive this gift of salvation, this gift of eternal life, this gift of being made right with him uh, through faith, he gives us an inheritance. And we see that in Revelation 5 and verse 10. It says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. He made us into a kingdom. As believers, I entitled this The Inheritance because this is what we are as believers receiving. We don't, inheritance is a, is a perfect word to describe the blessings of eternal life and ruling and reigning with Christ in this kingdom because he did all the work. He, uh, think about it in our lives. We do the work, we save the money, then we can give an inheritance to our Children, God is very much the same. He did all the work. We receive an inheritance by way of faith, not by doing works. 
trusting in what he did for us, then we can receive an inheritance. Speaking of doing the works, we don't do the works for this kingdom because it isn't a kingdom that is being described here of our own making. We don't make the kingdom. That's what post-millennialism is all about. Do you remember? We've talked about before, we are pre-millennialists, meaning that Jesus comes before the kingdom. He establishes it. A post-millennial idea is that we make the kingdom. We make this world uh, super good. And then we've made it so good that now Jesus can come and rule and reign over this great thing that we made. How are we doing so far? (laughs) I mean, if you think, if you believe in the millions of years, man, we've had millions of years to make it uh, right. Personally, I don't believe in the millions of years. I think we've had about, oh, 6,000 years or so to get this thing right. And yeah, it's pretty much gotten progressively worse. From Genesis 3, Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. You know, the earth was probably still a pretty nice place to be relatively. And now, wow, now look at it. Uh, Suzanne and I watched a documentary last night about the British East India Company and showing, they were showing, obviously didn't show footage from the 1700s. They showed footage from today of people living in India. And yeah, I want to tell you, you've, you've never seen, there is nowhere in America where people live in the kind of squalor, literally, is the only term I can think of that, that people are living in over there today. Yeah, we're not building God's kingdom here on earth. We're building a kingdom fit for the Antichrist, the one who hates God and hates Christ. That's what that's as, as good as we can get it uh, here. And the the real problem with a the uh, an idea that we're building a kingdom is that that it leads to a social gospel. We need to get people fed. We need to make sure that people have good clothes and good places to live and clean water. Of course, everybody everybody knows that. And we've got to make sure that we don't. Uh, we don't destroy the earth, so we've got to have lots of solar panels and windmills and all of this great stuff to, to take care of the earth. And that, that becomes our gospel. That's what's known as the social gospel. The church has gone through many iterations of this. It, it still is today, unfortunately, infecting uh, once good churches that get their eye off the ball of telling people that they're sinners and need to be saved by trusting in Christ. And instead, well, we just, we, we want to get them water. We want to dig them wells or, or pass out. Uh, we want to be a conduit for the government to work through food banks so that we can uh, uh, hand out food and feel good about ourselves. That, that's a real problem. That's a social gospel. And that isn't the gospel. The gospel of salvation through faith in Christ has nothing to do with the food that you eat or the water that you drink. Not that, the, not that that is necessarily wrong in and of itself, but that isn't the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to have people trust in Christ and then make them disciples. Make disciples as we go. Teaching people how to 
how to live in a way that is pleasing to God, and then they can go out and take care of people's needs. We ought to be taking care of people's needs, primarily here in our church, making sure that none of us are going without when, when we have needs, of course. But that's not the gospel. And if we think it is, according to the Bible, we are to be accursed. That's pretty strong language. Galatians 1.8, Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. That's a, a, a polite way of saying damned. He is to go to hell essentially is what that phrase means. Verse 9, as we have said before, so I say again, now if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. So we, we need to be very uh, sure that this kingdom that is being mentioned here is not one of our making, it is one of the Lord's making. He is the one who makes us into a kingdom. He is the one who makes us into priests. It is a kingdom and priests to our God. Very uh, a great indication that we are saved not to serve ourselves, but saved to serve God. That's what priests do. In the Old Testament, they were kind of a, a conduit, if you will, or an inter- mediary between the people then you the the nation of israel then you have the priests and they they work as a go-between between the people and god guess what in the new testament uh, we don't need that system anymore uh, and that's kind of a, a mistake sometimes that that people will make as far as uh, a pastor of a church kind of treating him as a as a priest well, I, you don't need that. You don't need, you don't need me specifically to pray for you like they do in other kind of false uh, ideas, false religions. Most every religion has some kind of priest that is a representative for the people to God. That's not the role of a of a pastor or a teacher. I would be happy to pray for you if you have something you would like me to pray for you about, but it's not something that, that you need to feel like, oh, I need to have the pastor pray for me because he's got some uh, secret inside way to God. Well, I, I guess I do have an inside way to God, but guess what? You have the same way to God. That's what's called the priesthood of the believer for us as Christians. We all have access to the throne of God. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Notice this. What's, what's the result of that? Verse 16, Hebrews 4. Therefore, let us draw near. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in time of need. Each one of us as believers in Christ has access to Jesus Christ, to God the Father directly through 
Jesus Christ, not through some man, not through a priest uh, on this earth, but through Jesus Christ himself who is in heaven. And of course, we should be praying for one another and these kinds of things, but you too uh, can have access to God the Father. We, we might want to, uh, sometimes it can be hard to go directly to God the Father, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. And, and maybe we want to just sort of take the easy way out. Well, I don't want to go to God with this, so I'll just ask somebody else to do it for me, and then I can go about my day. Well, we're all in this together. We're all priests or in that respect. We all have access to God as believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that's our purpose, in fact, as believers is to serve him in that way. Special access, in other words. The priests in, in the nation of Israel had special access to God. The high priest had the most access. One day a year, he was the one who could go into the Holy of Holies. But the priests themselves did certain things that God was requiring at that point in time. But they had to do it according to his rules and regulations. They didn't get to just do uh, whatever they wanted. That purpose of the law was to show the nation that God is special. He has certain ways that he wants things to be done, and, and we need to do it his way. It's the same way for us today. We don't, uh, we don't worship God however we want to, however we feel is right. We don't serve him however we feel is right. We're not conformed to his image based on our feelings, our understandings, our ideas. No, we go to the Bible, to God's word to uh, find out these things. Uh, pagan religion, on the other hand, is exactly that. What feels good? What feels like we're worshiping God? Well, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, and we uh, uh, pagans just sort of dream up their own ways of worship and then do it. The Bible, on the other hand, is God instructing his people how he wants us to worship him, how he wants us to serve him throughout various uh, periods of history. So he's made us to be a kingdom. He's made us to be priests to our God. And notice this, and they will reign upon the earth. Future tense. Will reign, it says there. Couldn't be any more clear on that matter. We are not reigning now. They were not reigning in John's time. They will reign upon the earth in the future tense. This is something that we have to look forward to. And this earthly kingdom is very, it's a very important part of, of God's plan for the world, obviously. And he has laid out covenants, promises to the nation of Israel, the nation that he will rule through. Unconditional promises that he has made. He's promised to, to give them a land. He's promised to give them a ruler. He's promised to give them people. We call it, it's uh, primarily given in the Abrahamic covenant 
And then he makes these other promises, land covenant, a Davidic covenant, the new covenant or the covenant of blessing. So this kingdom is unconditionally given to the nation that's literal, that has never happened on this, uh, on this earth or in history. And guess what? As believers in Jesus Christ, we partake in that same promise. This is what's being described here in Revelation 5.10. They will reign upon the earth, it says there. Believers, those who have trusted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ have this promise of one day reigning upon the earth. It doesn't say reigning in heaven with a harp sitting on a cloud. It says reigning upon the earth. And we are partakers in this promise. We have an inheritance that is promised to us. Revelation 3, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 3. If you remember to our study of the book of Ephesians, we talked about this that we partake in this same kingdom that is promised to the nation of Israel. This was a mystery before Paul revealed it. Re- Ephesians 3.1, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship or the dispensation of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. That's talking about chapter 2 where he described the church being a new entity, Jews and Gentiles together who've trusted in Christ. Verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Verse six, I love this phrase to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We will rule and reign with Christ upon this earth in this kingdom period to come in the future, not because we're so great, but because he is so great and we have trusted in him. We will rule with Christ. We made it. We made it to uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, the parable that Jesus tells about this exact uh, circumstance that is to take place in the future, people ruling, having authority in this kingdom when Christ comes back again. That's what the parable was about. He is the one who goes away to receive a kingdom. Before he goes, he gives money in the parable to his slaves. That's us. (laughs) He is the one who has given us money or the minas. What has he given to us? He's given us his word The book of Ephesians tells us that he's given us every spiritual blessing. He's given us the Holy Spirit to rely upon so that we will walk by means of the Spirit, not by means 
of the flesh, he's given us everything that we need to serve him in this life. And then one day in the future, he's going to come again for us. He's going to take us back to the Father's house and he's going to give us uh, rewards. At that point in time, the rest of that parable is going to play out where he is going to give authority to people who have served him in this life, authority in this kingdom to come. It's very, very clear in that parable to the one who uh, served him well Uh, In the parable, he's given 10 cities to rule over. Revelation 5.10, and they will reign upon the earth. It's describing precisely the same thing. Different levels of authority given to different uh, believers based on the way that they've applied the principles that are laid out in uh, the Bible. And, And of course, Jesus is... Uh, discernment and judgment is perfect. He gets exactly to our motives. Uh, If I'm standing up here with the motive of getting a lot of likes on YouTube, because that just really thrills my soul. uh, Yeah, that's probably going to be judged as not worthy of God's kingdom. If you, if you are a person who comes here and cleans the floor and cleans the toilets for Jesus Christ, yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. That will receive a reward in the future. If you're somebody who uh, serves your children every day for Jesus Christ, there's a reward for that uh, in the future. And so that's, that's basically what's laid out there in Luke 19.11. You, you, know, you don't have to be the pastor of a church. You don't have to be some superstar missionary that they write books about in the future to receive this reward. You have to be a person who, who does well with the gifts that God is, has given to you in, in perf- varying areas and uh, various uh, situations and thank God we aren't the ones who have to make that judgment on who's worthy. Jesus is the one who is worthy to be able to do that. Tribulation believers or tribulation saints will also reign. Revelation 20 and verse 4 uh, makes that very clear. Uh, Then it says, Revelation 20 and verse 4, this is after the tribulation, after Christ has Come again. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. There's kind of a a picture of church age believers having thrones, judgment being given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or and on their hand, tribulation believers, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And this is also an an eternal kingdom. It's not just a 1,000 year kingdom, but it is an eternal kingdom. Revelation 22, 5 describes that. So uh, this ruling and reigning upon the earth is after 
the seven-year tribulation period right here, uh, church-age believers resurrected and those who are happen to be alive are caught up to heaven, go to the judgment seat of Christ where he essentially will dole out the, the level of authority that we will have during this kingdom period where we will rule and reign with and for Jesus Christ for the 1,000 year period. Uh, sometime subsequent to that, the tribulation seven year period will begin. Then at the end, Christ will come again. Believers will be resurrected to rule and reign with him also during this thousand year period. Then that will end. Believers unbelievers from all time will be resurrected at the end of the thousand year period. We didn't talk about that. Great white throne judgment. They will be found not worthy. They will be put on the scales of justice with God since they chose not to trust in him. They will be placed onto the scales. They will go up like this because God is perfectly righteous and we are not. And they will be cast for eternity into the lake of fire. Believers, on the other hand, will go into a, a time of uh, a time of no time of any eternal bliss with God the Father, according to the scriptures. So then we have the irrepressible praise. If you hang with me just for another couple minutes, we'll get through all of this. Revelation 5, 11, quickly. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they go on to praise the Lord. We already read that before. Uh, myriads and myriads is kind of a phrase that means 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. This is a poetic way of saying a number that is uncountable an immense number of of angels are all worshiping God simultaneously. So we don't have just the four living creatures or just the 24 elders, but we have thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and millions and millions of created beings who are all worshiping the Lord at the same time. Uh, and this is similar to the same thing that Daniel saw, the myriads and myriads standing before him in Daniel 7.10, uh, very reminiscent of this. And, and notice again that he is worthy. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what's going to take place during the kingdom time, Christ is going to receive all of that. Everything that he was due the first time that he came to the earth, he will receive the second time that he comes to the earth. And notice verse 13, every created thing praises him. It's an incredible scene that is being laid out here. Verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, 
That's a pretty inclusive statement there. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, notice God the Father and God the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. This is exactly what was dis- that uh, is described in Philippians 2 uh, in verse 10. So uh, Jesus Christ emptied himself. He, he left heaven, left the, the glory that was there, came and lived on this earth perfectly, uh, sacrificing himself, serving others. We ought to do the same thing. In verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is something that will take place at the end of time, most likely, probably uh, back of that great white throne judgment time period that every created thing is going to recognize Jesus as the God of the universe. Now you can either do that uh, one, one way or the other. You basically have two options. You can do it now, recognize him as the one who died for your sins, and then you can live in perfect harmony, perfect bliss with him, forever, or you can blow that off. Just think, I, you know, I've kind of have everything figured out on my own and uh, it's all, it's all going to be fine. And then you can uh, recognize Jesus Christ as the God and savior of the universe at the great white throne judgment when you are laid bare and have to give an account for the way that you did not live up to his perfect standard. And then you will recognize him as the God of universe as you're being cast into the lake of fire for eternity, eternally separated from him. It's our choice. That's the way he's, he's designed the universe. We have a choice in this. This fact that he is worthy to do this causes the four living creatures to keep saying amen in verse 14, and the elders fell down and worshiped. These are the same uh, verses that we looked at last time. Uh, Pipto, falling down and worship before God. Uh, Proskuneo, worshiping him. That's what Satan asked Jesus to do in Matthew 4 uh, and Many people throughout the Gospels worship Jesus Christ. We're going to see John try to worship angels in, uh, later in Revelation. They tell him no, they don't accept his worship. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, always did accept worship because he is God. And he is going to create a kingdom that is worth celebrating in the future. He can do it because he gave the ultimate investment of himself, of his very lifeblood for the sins of the world. Uh, Because he did it for all people, we all have an opportunity to receive that inheritance. We receive it by way of faith in him. And when we do that, we should certainly recognize that he is worthy of praise. Let's go to him in prayer. 
Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. We thank you for the book of Revelation that is so much more than just a book describing uh, weird and fanciful things that are going to happen in the future. We thank you that it is a book who reveals who you are in the things that you have done for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would understand these things in a way that, that changes us and shapes us and molds us into your image, not the image of this world. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bring these things to our minds. I pray if there be any person here who has never trusted in you, that they would understand that, that salvation and eternal life is, is right there, offered to us, ready to be accepted because God in human flesh died for our sins, paid the penalty, and, and made a way that we can be made right with you simply by trusting in what you have done for us. And we thank you and praise you for that. And I pray, Lord, that we would live each and every moment of our day in light of these truths. We ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.